I uh, had the privilege of having a uh, godly grandmother who uh, would have been 100 years old today. And uh, she went to be with Jesus about three years ago. And I know she's rejoicing up there. And I just am thankful to him for parents and grandparents that prayed for me every day of my life. And I know that's why I'm here, and I just praise him for that. So I just wanted to let you know it was my grandmother's birthday. This morning's uh, scripture reading is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, Happy New Year. We have a treat this morning. We are going to hear from George Peltier, who is an elder emeritus here at Cole. Let me explain what that is a little bit. Uh, an elder emeritus is someone who has been an elder at Cole, as George had, has been for a number of years, and then when their health no longer allows them to endure the stresses and the responsibilities of eldership, we make them an elder emeritus, which means they're not serving on the board with us, but we are recommending them to you as people of wisdom and insight and encourage you to seek them out. And George has been an elder emeritus for some time. And we have asked him as elders to come share with us what he's learned over his years of walking with the Lord. Um, George has been an elder, as I said, for many years at Cole, and he also pastored a church in Fairfield for almost five years Uh, George has walked with the Lord and learned many great lessons. He has endured a number of things, including a brain tumor that affected his speech, and yet he continues to walk with the Lord and serve him and uh, just be a man of God. And so he really is a man of wisdom, and I'm excited to hear what he has to share with us about what he's learned from the Lord over the years. So would you welcome George as he comes to speak with us? You'll excuse me for setting. I have diabetes also, so I'm losing some of the circulation in my legs. And I'm not able to stand for very long, so bear with me. I'll tell you a little bit about myself first. Frida and I moved to Boise in 1981. I had worked for the city of Long Beach, California, for over 20 years, took an early retirement due to health, and we came up here. That was rather difficult, getting treated, crying out of the house that she'd lived in for almost 35 years. And you can imagine how she feels about where she's planted now. I'll talk about it later. When I came here, One of the things, or three of the things, I should say, I had planned on doing was hunting and fishing and collecting rocks. See, I was a rock count. I don't know if you know what that is. That's basically people who go out into the wilderness and look for and find beautiful rocks. They're agate or jasper or some of the things like that. 
And when I wanted to learn about that in the early 60s, I decided to join an organization to help me find where those rocks are. And they had sort of a tradition that in order to become a rock hound, you had to go through this initiation. And primarily where we collected rocks was in the desert, the, the Mojave Desert of Southern California. And they didn't feel it was right for us to go out pick up all the pretty rocks and leave nothing. So you were given a bag of marbles. And whenever you picked up a pretty rock, you would leave a marble. That way there'd be something nice there. <laughs> well, when you've lost all your marbles, you're a rock town. <laughs> I was almost bet that Frida would verify I lost my marbles quite early and very <laughs> rapidly. There were so many times that we would return in our camper from different collecting trips where she would have to put her feet on top of a bag that was filled with rocks on the passenger side. I had no more room for rocks. And so I had an awful good time collecting rocks. At that time, I felt like I'm an old guy, middle-aged. God didn't need me. I really didn't have any uh, training. I had no inclination that way. I wasn't in the best of health, so I didn't have a clue about what I should do. Well, as we came to Boise, at that time, David Roper was writing a column in the Saturday paper. And we read that and became so annoyed, uh, 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 infatuated with what he was saying that we thought, gee, that's a good church. Maybe we go there. And so we came here. And that was before this building was built. And we were meeting in the, what we call the fireside room at that time. That was back in 81. And listening to David teach what they call expository teaching just about blew my mind. You see, I had belonged to a church for 15 years that was a very, what I would call, legalistic church now. And our policy, if you will, was to read through the Bible every year. And for 15 years, I had read the Bible. I knew the stories. I knew what was said but I didn't know the meaning behind the stories. See, that's what the expository teaching is. We became really excited with what we were hearing. Uh, I really felt quite a bit like what I think the Ethiopian must have felt like in, in Acts chapter 8. It says, Behold, there was an Ethiopian sitting in a chariot that was Philip, went to the road on, on the road to Gaza, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And when Philip had run up, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he said to the Ethiopians, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how could I? Unless 
somebody guides me. That's how I felt. I knew the stories, but I needed a guide. I needed somebody to help me see what was being said. I began to take some of the classes here at the Cole Center for Biblical Studies. One of the first, of course, that really caught me was David Roper's teaching on the principles of ministry. And if you ever get a chance to hear that, please do. He has it on tape if you want to hear it. It'll, it'll inspire you. Well, after several classes, I kept taking classes. I, I was retired, so I had all the time in the world. So when they would hold the classes during the middle of the week, I, I would show up for the classes. Finally, I guess Brian got tired of having me around. He, he asked me if I'd just join the intern program. <laughs> wow. What a privilege. I joined the intern program and began to really become excited about what I was learning. About the middle of this program, they had an elder at that time, Pete Amon, who was transferred to the coast. And they asked me to take over his growth group in Eagle. Now, I'd never taught a group anything like that before. I was scared to death, frightened out of my wits. You know how the growth group lessons work, don't you? You've maybe been to them. They have a list of questions that you get the week before, and you ask the question the leader does, and then he waits for people to answer, and, and then they talk about it. I was so nervous that I got there and I asked a question and very nervously said, well, look, and nobody talked. And so I answered the question. And that happened over and over and over again. And all the way through, I was the only one did talking. After the lesson was over, Pat Mitchell, God love her soul, she called me over. George, you've got to let us talk. I said, how? They won't talk. She said, well, just take a sip of coffee and outweigh them. <laughs> and so I did. I learned how to do that, and I began to really appreciate the Bible study for that. Oftentimes, I was more instructed by what the people brought up than I was able to teach them. During that time, there was another group in Nampa that wanted to begin a growth group at Dr. Beattie's house, uh, Susan, Bob and Susan Beattie. And I decided, well, I'm doing one. Maybe I can do two. So I did. My wife was very agreeable to that, believe it or not. And so I was able to teach both in Eagle and in Nampa for quite a long time. One of the things I learned in the Nampa group, one of the ladies had a prayer request one night, and she asked for prayer for a situation that she was going on with her mother. And we prayed about it and let it go. And the next day, I was home in the morning, and I decided, oh, I felt like I needed to call her. So I did. And I called her and, and talked to her, and I haven't a clue what I said. But later, I was out in the back splitting wood. She and I gathered wood in those days. 
And Judy called me into the phone. It was this lady that I talked to. And she thanked me so much for what I said. And I, I couldn't believe it. I, I didn't know what I said. So I'm back out splitting with, you know, I'm popping my galluses. And I said, whoa, boy, so you, did, you did pretty good. I said, that's a good deal, huh? You did something right. A scripture came to mind. Matthew 16. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He said, now Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He began asking his disciples, saying, who does the people say that I, the Son of God is, Son of Man is? And they said, some say John. And others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Jesus said, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. Now, I don't know if Peter had the same trouble I did, but I get a little proud if I do something right. And I think God was showing me. He gets the glory, not me. If he hadn't called me, hadn't told me to call, I would never have done it. You see, I learned from that that oftentimes when I was in Bible studies or in the group study when I was working with the uh, leaders upstairs or in one of my classes, if I gave a good answer, it's a very big likelihood that God gave me that answer. A very big likelihood. Don't take the credit, George. That's what I learned. About that time, David and Harden came to me and asked me if I would join them for lunch. And I said, sure, that's fine. And while I was talking to them, they asked me if I would consider becoming an elder. And that was a shock. I, I had no clue that I should even think about becoming an elder. So I, I told him that I'd pray about it and talk to my wife. And I went home and I asked myself some what I thought were very serious questions. As I had been studying in uh, the New Testament with Greek, I realized that there was a place where Paul is talking to his, one of his disciples, one, Timothy or, or Titus, and he was saying that he should be able to teach. And I found out that that word can also mean teachable. So I asked myself, am I teachable? Do I uh, take such a strong hold on the things that I've learned in business and other churches and things like that, and want to apply it here and now? I don't mean am I teachable by the elders. I don't mean am I teachable by the head pastor. Am I teachable by God? You sometimes we can get so 
enwrapped around the traditions and the things and places where we've been that we can't let go of them. I felt I needed to take to the elder boys all these things, hold them out, say, God, you take what you want. Help me to see what you want cold to be. You see, I think we are an individual body that has a mission in this world. And it's unique. It's what God has for each body of his own in this world. Am I teachable? Can I let go of these things that have caught me, that have made me real in my life? Can I let go of them? Do I have an agenda? Do I want to come to call and make changes? Do I want it to go in this direction or that direction? More senior ministry? More youth ministry? That's something I need to say, God, you decide. You help me see which way we should go. You see, I found that Jesus was the CEO. He was the director. He was the planner. He was the one that we all had to go to. And we never made a, a serious decision as a body of elders without every elder agreeing. Now that sounds awfully com uh, complicated and very cumbersome. But I found over the 17 years that I worked as an elder, it was the most profitable. We were almost always, I, I think always, led to the right decision because we never ran over anybody's feelings. We let everybody speak up in the board. We let everybody discuss what they felt God wanted them to do. And then we came to a decision that we all agreed on. Also about this time, David Roper asked me to help him with IMM, Idaho Mountain Ministries. Oh boy, that was so much fun. I was able to travel with David and the different guest speakers to three different places in Idaho, here in Boise, up to Spokane, and over to Idaho Falls. And I got to listen to the speakers three times. Boy, you think you don't learn a lot more when you go three times, I'll tell you. That's really impressive because the pastors would ask questions, would lead out different answers to the different groups. It was so much fun. I listened to people like Ray Steadman from the Peninsula Bible Church. God bless him. I love him. Now with the Lord. Howard Hendricks from Dallas Theological Seminary. Great, great man. And one that impressed me was J. Oswald Sanders. He was quite old when he came over here with us. He was a director or associate or a, a coordinating director for the Mi Overseas Missionary Fellowship. I get that right. He said something to one of the groups up in Spokane. I'll, I don't think I'll ever forget. One of the young ministers asked him, is there any particular thing that I should focus on as becoming a pastor. Anything I should work on looking out for? He said, well, I'm going to tell you, just like 
would call me, by, uh, my mentor, one of my older pastors, look out for the three G's. Number one G, don't take the glory. It's God's glory. If your ministry builds up, if your ministry affects people, if your ministry makes you worth anything, give God the glory. Never take it yourself. Number two, never touch the gold. Don't count the offering as it comes in. Never be aware necessarily of how much surplus you have. Now it's obvious that if you're running low, you need to say something about it. The elders would tell you, and you could say something, but never be concerned that God wasn't in charge of what you had coming in. And of course, the number three is never touch the girls. Now I find, in all honesty, in the past years that I've seen great ministries fall down, they've fallen down over one of these three things. Great instruction, great learning. At that time, too, uh, I was asked to help in the pulpit supply. That's where different churches would need uh, a day off, a pastor would need a day off, or maybe they didn't have a pastor. The first thing that I was sent for was up to Stanley. They didn't have a normal pastor all year round because it's such a small community. It basically only operated during the summer months. During the winter, it was so cold and and overgrown with snow, they didn't have people up there. And so as I went up there to Stanley to teach, I don't know if you've ever been there, they've got the most beautiful chapel that sits upon the hill, and they have these beautiful big windows that are behind you as you teach. And during the spring, when the snow is so bright on the Sawtooth Mountains, an awful lot of the congregation will wear sunglasses. And, you know, I could never tell that they were sleeping <laughs> or if they were listening to me unless their head bopped, you know. <laughs> but in all honesty, that was one of the most beautiful times of my life. I learned to teach like a growth group. It started out with maybe 15, 20 people, and then it grew. Every Sunday then it went up because of the campers that came in. And by the time the end of the summer, it was maybe a hundred people. And so you, you built up your confidence speaking to a very small group, just like a girls group, and guess what? I didn't have to ask questions. I didn't have to wait for answers. Wow, that was neat. <laughs> I graduated from the Biblical Studies group in 1988. And we were uh, working with a church in Riggins at that time. They'd lost their pastor. And three of us were going up and taking alternate Sundays to teach up there. And at that time, I began to think, wow, maybe I could make one of these my church. I could become pastor of one of these churches. And so I asked Frida, 
אני, Thursday night, visited 
on Friday and Saturday for the different people, taught on Sunday, and came home Sunday afternoon. We did that for almost five years. This time in teaching a small church like that really, really affected me. It showed me so much of what I could be or should be. <coughs> I learned about baptisms. We went to Redfish Lake and baptized people in the, at a very cold lake. We, we had weddings. We had baby dedications. We had all these things that helped. And I had an interesting thing happen. I noticed while I was teaching that in the very back of the, of the church, there was a young group that sat back there almost all the time. And there was all preteens and, and teenagers. And as I would begin to teach, like I am now, they would listen partially until I told the story. And then they listened. I realized that's why Christ, thank you, that's why Christ told parables. That's what a parable is. It's a laying alongside what you're teaching, a story of real life. And I'm going to tell you a couple of my very favorites. I was able to teach on Mark 12. Read this way. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, and he began to observe how the multitude were putting money in the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to one cent. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors the treasury for they all put out of their surplus but she out of her poverty gave all that she had all she owned and I was able to tell a story to help explain that you see there was this World War II and there was a soldier who was driving down the war-torn streets of London. And as he was driving along, he saw this young boy with his nose pressed up against a glass window, and he stopped to look. And there was a young fellow looking in on a pastry shop, and he was practically drooling as he watched the baker knead the dough and bake it and fix it up, and then place it in the window right in front of him. So he walked up to the young boy. And he said, would you like some of those? He said, oh, oh boy, yeah, would I ever. So the soldier walked inside, bought a dozen of those nice rolls, put them in the bag, brought them back out, handed to the little boy, said, these are for you. And he turned to walk away, and as he did, he felt it jerking on his coat. 
He turned to look back, and this young boy was standing there, all big eyes. He said, Sir, are you God? You see, we are never more like God than when we're giving of ourselves to other people. Whether it is giving in the means of to the church or in this widow's case to the synagogue to help in the ministry, to minister to other people, or whether it's helping an individual in some way, never are we more like God than when we give of ourselves. And you know, God tells us several times in the New Testament and the world that we need to witness for him. We need to talk about him. We need to tell people about our experience with him. That's always scared me to death. I always feel like the barber, like the experience he had. That probably would happen to me. He became a Christian in his middle years, and he decided, well, I've got a captive audience. They're sitting in his chair. I can talk to them. I can tell them about Christ. And the first man came in, got a haircut, and he very nervously gave him the haircut and didn't say a word. Next man came in, the same thing happened. Gave him his haircut and didn't say a word. Then he began chastising him. So, I've got to say something. I've got to say something. And the next man came in and wanted to shave. And so he got the hot towel on his face and he lathered him up real good. And he stands over there stroking his razor and he said, I will say something. I will say something. I promise. I will say something. I walked back over and tilted the man's head back, looked him right in the eye, and said, Sir, are you ready to meet God? <laughs> Needless to say, it scared the poor guy half to death. He went right out the door. <laughs> That's the way I felt my testimony might be. I'll talk about that more later. I learned about funerals. I never thought I'd like to have a funeral or preside over one. Didn't think much of it until I realized that most of the time you would have people in the audience that wouldn't set foot in the church otherwise. I had a chance to tell them about Jesus, a chance I would never get otherwise. And so I looked for ways to tell about Christ. And one of the first things I used was a poem that I learned from David Loeffler. Thank you. It was written on a tombstone, and it says, Here lies the remains of Oliver P. Well, what lies here is not really me. All that is here is just a pod. P has shelled out, gone home to God. Amen. I also like to tell the one, the true story about Winston Churchill. He was 90 years old when he died in 1965, and he planned his funeral, or at least he planned on the way he wanted some things to happen there. During the funeral, of course, they had their eulogies and the people came up and told how much he'd done and how good he was and things like that. And after that was all done, this was in the Church of St. Paul's in London, huge dome church. 
After, after it was all done, everybody was sitting quietly waiting for something to happen. A bugler, way in the top of one side of that dome, began to play taps. Day is done, gone the sun, and on. And no sooner had the, the melodies died out from that bugler, everybody sitting there very quiet and tinted, and another bugler, the other side of that great dome, began to play reveling. I gotta get up, I gotta get up, I gotta get up in the morning. You see, Winston Churchill wanted the world to know that any Christian, and he especially, the last note in his life was not taps. Reveille. I'm going to be there, Lord. I love that thought. I realized after I talked there for a short time, I'm learning slow, <laughs> that I was going to fail these people. I realized that I couldn't possibly know all their problems. And even if I knew them, I probably didn't understand them. You know, I'm just a guy. So my primary purpose was to teach them they had to depend on Jesus, depend on him. He's the only one that really, really understands. He really knows what's going on. I saw then that my job was to tell people how much I loved them how much I love Christ, and then to get out of the way. Allow that love that started in each of their hearts to build and nurture and grow beyond anything I could say or do. That's what I'm hoping to instill in you today. What keeps on wrong? Well, I left Fairfield in 1997 I left because this happened. This was a tumor that the doctors in Seattle discovered that had grown for a number of years. It started on the acoustic nerve in the ear and then expanded into the cranium inside my skull. And in order to get that tumor out, they had to go through the ear canal, the hole that's in the right there to get that out. It was a 12-hour operation in 1994, and God got me through it. I literally felt the prayers of this congregation. I literally felt the prayers of my wife and all those that were praying for me. As I would fall into this deep depression that would come, I could feel the buoyance of God lifting me back up. I was able to tell people at the end in 1997 the story about a lady that was come up to a pastor. He told them he was leaving the church. He was going to move to a different church. And she says, oh, oh pastor, I'm so sorry to see you go. I'd really, really like to have you stay. And I'm, I'm really... I'm going to miss you. And he said, oh, don't worry. God will help you get a new pastor. Everything will be okay. 
And she said, oh, uh, that's what they all say. And it keeps getting worse and worse. <laughs> and I wanted to tell the congregation in actuality, that's the way I really hope it is with me. I want you to realize, don't depend on me. Depend on Jesus. He's the one that will lift you up. Now I come to the final thing. I, I received an email from my sister in Oklahoma in July. It affected me so much that that started what you hear today. I felt I needed to say something about this, so I'm going to read the email. I'm going to try to read the email. I've yet to get through this, so forgive me. Written by a lady named Edna Ellison in one of the southern states. She spent the week before her daughter's June wedding running last-minute trips to the caterer, the florist, the tuxedo shop, and the church, which is about 40 miles away from where she lived. To save money, she had gathered blossoms from several of her friends large magnolia blossoms from trees that they'd had in their yard, creamy white blossoms with their shiny green leaves would look beautiful in the church. So after the rehearsal dinner, the night before the wedding, they banked the choir loft in the podium area with these magnolias, and then they left about midnight. She was exhausted. But she was confident that this was going to be the most beautiful wedding any woman had ever gotten. The big day arrived the next day, the busiest day of her life. And she went with Nancy's fiancé to this church for a final checkup. As they opened the door, a blast of hot air hit them. During the night, a storm had come. It knocked out the air conditioning system. All the flowers were black. They had died and turned black. She was shocked. He was beside herself. Didn't know what to do. She knew she didn't have time to run back to the church, back where she lived, to get more blossoms. So she thought, Lord, what can I do? As Tim said, I'll take the dead ones out and give them. Can you get more flowers, Edna? Uh, she mumbled, sure. When he left, she prayed. She said, Lord, I don't know anybody in this town. Help me to find somebody that's kind and gentle. Help me to find the courage to go up and ask somebody at the, the door if I could have some flowers. And please, not let a dog be there to bite me. <laughs> so as she started that left the church, she drove down the road. She saw a large bunch of magnolia trees ahead of her. And she drove up to the house, and she saw the, the, the trees there. She oh, this must be the place. And she went up to the door, and so far, no dog. So she felt good about it. Knocked on the door, and this very old gentleman answered the door. She asked him about the flowers, and he smiled real big and said, of course. And he got out a stepladder, and they went out back, and they cut down flowers, and they brought them out to her car, and they loaded them in the car, and 
she said, just at the end, as he loved the last, she said, Sir, you've made the mother of a bride very happy today. He said, no, ma'am. You, you don't understand what has happened here today. But, she said, you see, my wife of 67 years died on Monday. I received sins at the funeral home on Tuesday, and on Wednesday I buried her. He looked away. On Thursday, most of my out-of-town friends had gone home, and on Friday, my children left. This morning, I was just sitting in my den weeping out loud. Oh, I miss her so. You see, for the last 16 years, when her health was going down, she needed me. And now, nobody needs me. Who needs an old man? And about that time, you knocked on the door. And you said, I need you. She stood there with her mouth hanging open. He said, are you an angel? She assured him that he was, she wasn't. He said, you know what I've decided? I've decided that I'm needed. My flowers are needed. There are many caskets at the funeral home that don't have flowers. Many churches and weddings and uh, rest homes, they could use flowers. I'm going to have a flower ministry. I'm going to serve God until he calls me home. She drove back to the church, filled with wonder. If anyone had asked her, to encourage someone on her daughter's wedding day, she would have said, forget it. I'm too busy. I don't have anything I can do. But you see, God found a way through dead flowers. God found a way. Life is not always what it's supposed to be. It's what it is. It's what you make of it is what makes the difference. She didn't plan to minister. She didn't work at it. God used her to encourage another person. Do you see that? It wasn't something you make up ahead of time to witness to people. God puts people in your path, and all you do is say, hey, I know somebody can help you. His name is Jesus. You know, I remember a story about a, a, a happening back in 1934. There was a big revival going on in Charlotte, North Carolina. And a big tent meeting just outside the main part of town. And these two 16-year-old boys had come late. And they were looking for seats. And the usher there took the time to find them a place way down front, but found them a place. And he found seats for them. Now that doesn't sound like much, does it? It doesn't sound like witnessing. 
What if I told you one of those 16-year-old boys was Billy Graham? Did he do something for God? You bet he did. I can tell you today, God will use you. You will feel more needed than anything in your life if you just allow him to come into your life and use you, make you what he wants you to be. The page turn. I'm going to pray for us. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to tell the people how much I love you. Would you instill in their hearts today the reality of your deep, overwhelming love for each of them? Show them the pleasure, the joy, the benefits of an intimate, personal relationship with you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Yeah, from here. Yeah. Get my legs, boy. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh huh. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.